Crossing the Nerdverse. I'm your host, Travis. Join with me, as always, are my two fantastic co-hosts. Ryan, I swear I haven't fudged any dice rolls. Joining us today for an episode of Notables in the Nerdverse, as well as Eric, I swear I've always had that spell prepared. I mean, Fireball is always at the ready. It's mandatory. Oh, who doesn't prep Featherfall, honestly? Ryan, how you been this week? Uh, not too bad. It's been uh, been kind of a slow week. My my roommate's in Antarctica right now doing some kind of sciencey shenanigans. So it's been been pretty calm, pretty slow. I've been uh, as far as nerdverse news goes. Uh, I've been checking out a new animated TV show about Harley Quinn on HBO, which I highly recommend. Fantastic show, a lot of fun, very satirical. Been enjoying it. Eric, what about you? So I've done a lot of uh, sort of the branding this week again. I'm just improving on stuff, uh, designing like another logo, some banners for YouTube, um, Twitter, and then trying to look at starting some Twitch stuff. Also taking a look, there's some other um, ways to stream, not just Twitch that's out there. Um, that I'm kind of taking a look at, seeing about doing. I also talked to a company about an AI um, for video recording, so if we, if we wanted to incorporate some things that weren't just our beautiful faces, um, it kind of intuitively would would put things in there that we're talking about, kind of like funny things, um, maybe serious things. I don't know. I haven't I haven't dived enough into it. Um, the merch store is very close. All I need now is words. I did include beanies. Um, Dab Dad has mentioned beanies on our Twitter as something we should have on the store. So that's an item I included. Um, we've got the basic stuff right now, like T-shirts, hoodies, uh, cups, a mat for your desk, and beanies. Um, that'll be coming out next month is what we're looking at doing. Um, then I've also been smashing through um, Jedi Fallen Order on the hardest setting. Yes, I will take complete credit on the hardest setting. Um, I have died a lot. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie about that one, um, but it, it is. It is nice to see a game like it doesn't have any any real. I don't know glitchiness to it or anything like that. The fighting is generally pretty smooth. Once in a while, the camera can kind of get away from you, um, but overall, it's it's a solid game. And and once you get the timing down, um, even on the hardest setting, uh, you can start uh, sort of breezing through the game. But you do have to play it all the time because when you stop, you lose your timing. Other than that, though, uh, I think that's everything. It's kind of been busy. Um, so so what would you do, Travis? I have been so absolutely slammed with work and other aspects of life. I have not got to do much nerding this week as I would like. I did start a new sci-fi book, which I will absolutely recommend. It's The Three-Body Problem. My friend Bryce and James both recommended it to me. I highly recommend it. I'm only... 
a little over a hundred pages in and I'm already super, super addicted to the story. It's very well written, very well done. So if you guys are out there looking for a new book, check out Three Body Problem. So this this week's episode is going to be more Notables in the Nerdverse, our new show. I think Ryan had a big announcement was going to lead us off with. Ryan, go ahead. Well, after our last episode of Notables, obviously all throughout January, Dungeons and Dragons was a headline that was everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, TikTok. It was everywhere, and that's all anybody was talking about in the Nerdverse for a long time. Because Hasbro decided to try to flex with the open gaming license. Now, we covered what that meant in our last episode, so if you need a refresher, go check it out. But the kind of recap on that and how everything ended up was really interesting. So ultimately, and there's some controversy on exactly what this means and what they're going to try to do in the future. But ultimately, Wizards of the Coast backed down. They completely backed off, gave the fans what they wanted, and so... A lot of people are taking that as a we can be heard, we can take a stand as a fandom to keep things the way we want them or to make the change we want to see, which I think is pretty cool. So ultimately, Wizards of the Coast canceled and pushed back plans to reveal more about the open gaming license and eventually issued two separate apologies. One of them was a blanket statement that really just kind of pissed people off more, like it was not well received. But later, Kyle Brink, who is the executive producer of Dungeons and Dragons, issued a personal apology, which was much more, I'm going to say authentic, in my opinion, in my opinion only. I think it was more authentic apology, because I don't think the D&D production teams or anything from the actual D&D studio was consulted on a lot of this. And I could be wrong. But, you know, Brink's apology really addressed a lot more of the community's concerns and attempted to reassure the community that the updated OGL would not allow Wizards of the Coast to claim ownership of custom D&D content. This is super important for a lot of the producers out there. Specifically, you know, the uh, Critical Role has a lot of custom stuff. And the SRD and a lot of the data that was used, of course, as we talked about in the last episode, was major stepping stones for a lot of production companies out there. Paizo, Cobalt Press, and the like. Um, so ultimately there were over 15,000 responses that were received by Wizards of the Coast and the feedback was largely negative. Um, it inspired a dramatic rethinking, I think is how they phrased it, of the open gaming license. And the quote that we received, and there's a section of it, is we are leaving OGL 1.0a in place as is and untouched. And later on the D&D Beyond Twitter account, they also said, we are also making the entire system reference document 5.1 available under a Creative Common license so you can choose which you prefer. Which was actually really cool because that meant a lot of creators didn't get limited in their tools at all and actually ended up with a lot more creative tools to work with. And at least seemingly... It's because of the overwhelming community response. I really think that them opening up the 5.1 as like a a community resource was definitely an olive branch to try and bring bring people back. Just doing in my own like checking between when they first started talking about the OGL getting changed up to now, 
I've visited several gaming stores. Not a single copy of Pathfinder Core Rulebook to be found. Pathfinder 2E sold out everywhere. It's looking like the damage may be done. This is definitely... I'm not saying that this is going to kill Dungeons & Dragons by any means. Because you're talking about, again, owned by Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast. They're going to dump money into it. It's going to be fine. But I think this was definitely a pretty hearty blow to their bottom line, which really feels like that was a way to try and draw some people back in. Yeah, but we got to wait and see if it's going to change with this new, new edition coming out. That's where I'm curious because what they've done, I think is they've done some feelers to see what we were going to do as a community. Um, We've definitely given a lot of pushback because there's a lot of websites you can go to and get a a lot of homebrew stuff, um, especially maps um, one hitters, things like that. So, um, I'm curious to see when the new edition comes out, which they're testing right now, by the way, shout out to Druids. Cause you're finally going to be cool. Supposedly, um, never a big <laughs> yeah. fan prior to, but if I can be an owlbear, um, I might be down with it and we might have the movie to thank for that. But, um, yeah, when the new, when the new edition comes out, I think that that'll be the best time if they're going to try to change anything. Because that way it looks like they're they're being nice to us by giving us all this oomph with all the older stuff. But the new edition, I think I think they're gonna put when they put it out, I think it's gonna come with a with a little bit a little bit of extra sauce on it. Um in the sense of like the way we're gonna be able to make content and stuff for it. I think that's when they're gonna they're gonna grasp on and stuff. So they look like the good guy because of what they've done now. And then with the newer the newer product coming out, they're kind of a little bit more. Well, we're going to be a little more controlling. You know, you guys aren't used used to anything with it, so I think it'll change. But the the new product, as far as I'm tracking, still a ways away because they're still testing, right, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. They're they're releasing a lot of very transparent play testing and being very open with a lot of their data. And I think I agree with your assessment. I think that you know they caught a lot of flash. And they caught a lot of negative press. And so they backed off. They gave us what we wanted. Is it going to stop them from trying something else in the future? Obviously not. Hasbro is Hasbro. And it might be a little bit of my own tinfoil hat, but it does put me very much on the defensive. Now, that being said, the new expansion, the the one D&D kind of grouping that they're getting ready to release is a, is a ways out. But the stuff that they've released, I think, is really cool. It's really neat. I have my own nitpicky things, my own complaints and attaboys that I would give that particular system. Um, which, if any of the uh, Dungeons & Dragons production team is listening, please give your DM more tools. Show the Dungeon Masters some love. I know you're releasing a lot of cool stuff for players. Release cool stuff for Dungeon Masters. That would be great. But Please please continue to make everything super, super vague so I can take advantage of it during play. No, <laughs> here's my thing, though. Really, is... Whatever... You, we as a DM though we own we own the world like not even just like homebrew but like to look at the rules a lot of them are they're not vague but a lot of them give us ways to work around it as a, as a dungeon master. Um, so yeah, they could give us a couple of cool things. Uh, um, I just I, I haven't DM'd enough to know as to what I would consider something kind of cool that they could give us because I could already kind of tweak things and work things. Um, I could already mess with stuff. Um, I feel like it. it it's always going to lean towards the players because it's harder to give the generic, I don't know how to say it, like the storyteller, the god of the world. It's hard to give you anything really as a boon because anything they give 
will seriously hamper players. See, for me, there's three things, and me and Bones talks about this all the time. There's three things that I would like to see be much more considered in a dungeon in the new Dungeons and Dragons system. First and foremost, a complete overhaul of social interaction. I would like to see a set of mechanics and guidelines and even actions, same as you get in regular combat or in the regular game, for social interactions. I personally have a system that uh, me and my table have kind of built. We haven't implemented it a lot because it needs to be balanced, which is what I want from from Dungeons and Dragons and from, from Wizards of the Coast, where you can have combat scenes that are social combat scenes. Um, where you have kind of a, a secondary hit point pool of willpower and you can verbally sp- uh, parry and spar and, and do things. And so that's one thing I want for sure. Secondly, is a crafting system that isn't broken. And I would have made an argument a few years ago that it was too difficult to do and you should just take crafting options out. I was wrong about that because you need your players to be able to craft, even if it's as simple as making their own arrows while they're out in the woods. Um, and Pathfinder 2nd Edition really has a good system for that. And the last one that I want to be in the new system is a magic item economy guideline, where as a DM, you can choose your magic item kind of saturation, and then it gives you guidelines on, are they super rare? Are they black market only items? Are there magic item shops in the town? And give some examples on how that'll work. I Yes, it'll be up to the DM, to see how that's implemented in the world, but I would like to see guidelines on magic item economy. Yeah, that's been my biggest gripe with 5th edition overall. Mechanically speaking, really enjoy it. Story and lore, character building, all that fun stuff. I haven't had any problems with it, again, from this player's perspective. The only complaint I have is that by level 6 or 7, I am flooded with treasure that I can't spend because there's nothing for me to buy, especially if you're like a really, really mobile party where you're jumping from town to town, village to village, kingdom to kingdom or whatever. Why would I buy a keep? What am I going to do with it? I'm never there. Like I just, I buy it and then I fill it full of people and then I choose to either involve or ignore it as I wish, but use really no guidelines for a magic item economy. I know they're supposed to be much rarer than they've been in previous editions, which is fine. At the same time, I'm an adventurer. I am exceedingly rare. Right? I should be coming across these things by virtue of the profession of adventuring. So No, it's it, it's hard, but it's up to the it, it's a DM thing. Like that's the biggest thing. Like right now I'm trying to come up with another campaign I want to run. So I've got a world design. I've got a pretty decent map. Um, I've got a nice little map collection for it. Um, the, the first story I ran with it, I think my players would probably say it wasn't the best, and, but it was the first time I'd run anything in a long time. I think it started out really well. Um, it kind of got stagnant, but part of the problem was the money and the magic items. Um, the biggest thing I'm going to work out before I run a game again is that problem. Um, I want I want to make it so I'm probably going to do more rare magical items, um, more rare where rare potions um, give more incentive for them to, to, to get a tavern or, or to start a blacksmith shop, things like that. So, um, but what do you got Ryan to close us out with this one? Yeah. Um, and bear in mind, I agree with your assessment. 
And I think that experienced storytellers and experienced dungeon masters in, in any game, really, whether it's D&D or Pathfinder or World of Darkness, they kind of know how they want things to run and how they want things to go and can do that. What I would like to see in these guidelines isn't necessarily for us um, or for veteran players, but D&D 5th Edition is really, really good at one thing, and that's bringing new players in. What it's really bad at is bringing new dungeon masters in. Inexperienced or aspiring dungeon masters have very little guidelines, and the book repeatedly tells them, I'll just do it. Just do it your way. And that's because every table's a little bit different, and every DM needs to gauge and judge depending on the players at their table. But I would like to make things a lot easier for new dungeon masters. Um, Real quick, last thing to throw with that. So Fantasy Grounds, if anybody's involved with it, Shout out to them. Great product. Um, Great product. One thing with them is they do schools and classes and stuff to help bring along DMs. Um, they've got an amazing Discord. Um, it's a it's a really good community. So if you're looking at doing anything like that, they've actually done it and, and made it a lot easier for DMs to kind of move along um, and progress and like run little games here and there and stuff to kind of get a feel for it. Well, someone helps them out. Um, it, it's pretty impressive what they've done. I haven't messed with any of it. Um, my ego, unfortunately, is rather large. Um, so I'm not allowed to get help with stuff. Um, if I do, I feel like I um, am basically a, a ginormous wussy. Um, so I unfortunately have to refuse help. Um, so I just adapt and overcome. But I do have an amazing next topic. So the big thing I wanted to talk about um, and it's something that's affected the gaming community now for a little while. Um, it's cheaters. So as we all know, like COD, um, COD's a big notorious one. There, there's hackers left and right, and there's a lot of companies that make hacks for the game. Um, but finally, something that's, that's rather cool that's happened. Um, Bungie actually sued a company selling cheats and won. Um, oh, so finally, right? It's exciting because like, I get it. Like it's not always for money that we play these games, but it, it's nice to see that something something came of it. Um, so the company was uh, Aim Junkies, I guess. Um, but Bungie sued and won, um, and they were releasing things for. Um, let me see here. It, it was Destiny Two, but they were releasing hacks for it, I guess. This this explains why I wasn't always top box when I was playing Crucible. <laughs> Obviously, everyone I was playing against was hacking. <laughs> On a serious note, though, I had no idea there was a company making things oh. like the aimbot and the cheats and stuff. Had no idea that was a monetized thing. I yeah, thought multiple, this was just... multiple companies. Well, I don't know if they're like I say companies, and I know we use the word company, but I think they were just people. I don't think they were like technically legit companies because of. But they were an entity, obviously, because like this one was the was the uh, aim junkies. So I, I know obviously uh, they are something. I remember hearing stories that several of these, and like you said, I guess they're not like licensed companies, so to speak. But many of them operate under another license that start off as like modding communities or even indie game development studios that then turn around and create these these cheats and these aim bots and other software that you can sell that they kind of do behind closed doors or behind the curtain. And so they look like they're making their money from indie game development or programming or whatever. And when in reality they're selling 
hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cheating software to the community. Lo just Loki out there selling aimbot to people. So I'm reading this. Well, in just so everybody knows, what? I got the article from Eurogamer. Um. It's news by Ed Nightingale, so that way, since I'm mentioning names, I'm going to put it all out there. Um, Inside the sources. Yes, definitely. Since naming names is very important. Um, but yeah, so that that's where I got the info. If you guys are looking to uh, look up what I'm reading. Um, it's not a, like an in-depth article or anything like that, like this company just released. Um, Bungie requested, I guess there was over 2,000 downloads of the cheat software. Um, and they also wanted to get fees, um, loss, like lawyer fees and stuff like that from the people. So they want all that. Um, next, they're going after, I guess it's Levy Cheats, L-E-V-I Cheats. Um, that's the next one that Bungie's going after in regards to software for cheating on um, Destiny 2. So it, this is so interesting because COD is such a big thing. And I love Destiny. But it's not as big as COD, especially on the professional level. So I I love watching COD. Um, I've actually, like when I lived in Columbus, I actually went to a live event. I met um, just briefly some of the players because they kind of just mingle um, when they're there. It's not like a, um, at the time, it wasn't like a sporting event where players are like far off or anything like that. They were pretty cool and like they'd say hi and, and shit like that. So it was nice. I met a couple of them. But uh they really do take their career pretty serious, which I'm not surprised. It's a video game. Reflexes have got to be primo. Um, you got to be on the spot. You got to learn map callouts. Like there's a lot to like watching them play and stuff. So to know that there's cheaters out there now, like people use computers to play, um, it's a lot easier to do. Um, I'm waiting to see what what happens with all these companies that are known to put out. So it's not like they have to go hunting them. They already know them. Um, so I'm curious as to what they're going to do for, for like punishment or if they're going to go after him or what. Yeah. And see, especially you're talking about the call of duty players. I mean, it's been an ongoing joke for, for a while that the call of duty and the apex and the other shooter players are kind of the jocks of the nerd world. Because they do, it's it's a professional sport for a lot of them. And, you know, very rarely do we see any kind of, of cheating in any professional sports avenue, whether it's football or, or basketball or hockey, that goes unnoticed by the fans. And it's been a frustration of mine on for two reasons, that cheating has been so prevalent in the gaming community for so long, because many companies can't, can't or won't do anything about it. Like, they, they kind of make it the player's problems. Um, many other companies like Call of Duty and Apex and Hunt Showdown take really hard stances on cheating. They just have to try to stay in front of it. And so it becomes kind of a, an arms race like the old school bootleggers. Like, well, we're going to wear armor, so they're going to use bulletproof bullets or armor piercing bullets. But my frustration is the fact that this cheating software can apply to such a versatile array of games that it's starting to really cripple a lot of game development. I'm really looking forward to a game called Marauders, which is in early access right now. And the cheating is so bad that it is basically unplayable. Yeah. It, a lot of games coming out in development, I know for a fact, like a lot of them you'll see on Steam come with 
anti-cheat software already preloaded with the game. So as soon as you're downloading the game, obviously it's going to go through an anti-cheat software of some kind to try and weed some of that stuff out. So it's interesting to see that there is going to be legal ramifications moving forward to these companies that are making this cheating software. It really opens up an avenue for specifically Activision being the big one to, to come down hard on some of these companies because cheating in Call of Duty has really gotten rampant. And just just to make everybody aware, the reason that cheating is is not as prevalent in sports compared to video games is the gambling aspect. So gambling is huge in everyday sports. We all see it, especially hockey this year. Hockey has been annoying with it. I'll just be honest with you. It has been annoying with how much hockey is pushing um, gambling this year. I I don't know why. Um, I guess maybe because it's somewhat newer. I don't know. It's annoying. Um, I don't, I don't mind it. And if you gamble, it's awesome. I, w- I wish it was easier for me to gamble on sports where I'm at, um, but it is not. So um, that's part of the difference because if something is found out as cheating, I think it then there comes some liabilities with gambling and stuff like that. Like, so not a lawyer, but I believe that's why. Well, I know that's why cheating is so much heavily enforced and things happen with professional sports compared to gaming but i think because gaming now is becoming a lot more like professional sports in the sense of publicized um, gambling starting to funnel its way into it and stuff like that you're going to start seeing these crackdowns on cheating because people are going to start gambling more on the call of duties on the overwatches on the I don't see it happening with Destiny 2 as much because it doesn't seem like it's got a big... It's got a big community, but it doesn't seem like it's got a a, a, a competitive team, COD, Overwatch-type community to it. But you're going to start seeing it more because I think gambling will slowly seep its way into gaming more heavily than it currently is. So they're going to have to crack down on it. What's up, Travis? I just wanted to add on to it with Destiny. It doesn't really have the pro league in the same way that COD you touched on yeah. a little bit, not not nearly to that level. But it is a good sign for those other games that do have pro leagues associated with them outside of it because it really will narrow the playing field. I also think another reason that cheating is so prevalent in a lot of these situations, even in the casual player versus player sense, is that there's very little oversight to it right not a whole lot of people really really watching over the top of it but this topic does segue perfectly into mine speaking of liars cheats and people with not a whole lot of oversight i have to mention vince mcmahon who is apparently my source for this was an unconfirmed article from sean ross sap no crap just sap over at Frightful Fightful Select, I should say. Not Frightful, it's not Halloween. Fightful Select. A talent has reached out to him to mention that Vince McMahon has been venturing into creative yet again. This was after a rather vehement statement that he would not be involved in the creative process, which then kind of got touched on by Triple H, where he said he would be discussing creative with Vince McMahon, but he would have the ultimate say-so. It's looking like old Vince can't let it go and is back in the creative area, back on the cutting room floor, 
We'll see how this progresses as it moves forward. I wish for the life of me I could report on something besides the dumpster fire that is WWE backstage. Well, and, you know, in regards to the WWE stuff and and even tying it back in, like you said, the cheating in video games and, and how the crackdown on the cheating in sports goes, it makes me think, it makes me wonder about a correlation between history and tradition in a particular, you know, form, gambling, and kind of like you said, the dumpster fires that arise from that. You know, you look at professional sports, you know, basketball, hockey, you brought up gambling, and my thought immediately went to golf. Golf has got a very rich, very long history, and it's very common for people to gamble on games all the time. Playing $100 a ball, putting over-unders on minor details in the game. And last year in 2022, when Live Golf came out of the Saudi Arabian League, there was a huge upset in the community. Now you're looking at the video games starting to crack down on cheating, and I think Eric's right. I think the gambling aspect comes into play. And the problem is video games doesn't have the rich history or tradition that these sports do. It's interesting to hear you talk about the WWE dumpster fire because while there's not nearly as much gambling, I suppose, that goes on in WWE. It's hard. It's hard to gamble on something that's predetermined. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the creative floor and, and how Vince McMahon is starting to treat it has got a lot of the same feel, this kind of, strong arming money ball kind of feel to it. And it's, it's curious to me because it's effectively like somebody stepping in to a television show that's doing really well or an anime that's doing very well and saying, nah, I own this amount or this percentage or I own the title. So now I'm going to write the episode. But you're going to, you're going to know for a fact when Vince takes over, by how the show plays out the next few months. So Vince has a particular way to do his stuff. You can, you've can you seen it since the dawn of time. He picks particular people, and they always win when it matters the most. Like, yes, he gave breadcrumbs to people to win at pay-per-view events here and there, but the big SummerSlams, um, WrestleManias, like the big main events, you will, you will see certain people win if Vince is in charge. That's one thing. He can't hide. So even though, like Travis said, he's it's not a it's not a guaranteed like it's not a for sure thing that's going on. It's not like a verified source. You'll be able to tell. Like this is one thing with Vince, you'll be able to tell. And like you, you got to give it like a probably about two months to be sure. But by month two, you're gonna know if Vince is in charge or not. He can't hide it. He he's incapable. And this may be my paranoia speaking. I know between the three of us, I'm the only one that really watches current professional wrestling shows pretty regularly. This last episode of Monday Night Raw, there was definitely a Vinnie Mac feel to it, if I'm being honest. He's setting up these big matches between giants because... Vince McMahon likes people that are above six foot, eight inches tall and pushing 300 pounds or better. The bigger and taller you are, obviously the better professional wrestler you are in Vince's mind. If something is successful, it will continue to be successful. I'm going to be watching it like a hawk and watch the amount of rematches that come up. Vince picks his elites that get to be on the TV show and they will do match after match 
after match. The storyline will drag on forever with no conclusion. You look at the way Triple H was doing the storytelling, and if he was ready to give somebody a push or somebody was getting ready to skyrocket to the next level, he broke them down. Triple H would go out of his way to have them lose every match, to have them get made fun of backstage, to have them just be an absolute shambles, spend about three to four weeks off of TV entirely, and then come back at a whole new level. Three to four weeks is short to try and reboot somebody, but he had so much work to do to get creative back to where it got to. I'm just really scared that Vince is going to come back and we're going to be getting the same 10 matches. So that brings up an interesting point. When I start thinking about a lot of the, uh, the successful media and stuff, there's a constant kind of fan complaint, particularly in, in big media, you know, like movies and stuff where somebody will find something that works. And then suddenly they're making 15 of them that are just what we refer to as cookie cutters, right? It's the same movie with a different character name, and they make it over and over and over again until it stops making money. Now, I was into wrestling for a long time throughout the mid-90s all the way into the 2000s. Enjoyed it a lot. Does the cookie cutter aspect in in wrestling come into play a lot more? And like, is it more prevalent in WWE versus uh, AEW? Or how, how does that work? Is that is that a problem? AEW's doing a really good job of not being cookie cutter. They're doing pretty good about keeping storylines going and progressing, like moving forward. Once one is done, they usually try and move on and transition to something else. Vince really, when he's in charge of creative, it really feels like he's trying to capture lightning in a bottle again. You know, everyone always wants to talk about the Attitude Era, which is really the high that WWE reached. You're talking about The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Even when they, you know, got WCW, you brought in amazing people like Diamond Dallas Page, wildly underutilized in my opinion during that promotion. But again, the dude did amazing when he was on TV. Nobody beats DDP, um, which is probably one of the best slogans I think he had in his career. But it's just one of those things you'll see a lot more cookie cookie cutter coming out of WWE with Vince in charge of creative than you will anywhere else. Obviously you're always going to have that heel face aspect where the good guys fight the bad guys, but that's always storytelling. I think part of the thing is too, is when Vince is in charge, you see the, the big names were always big guys that weren't very, not very athletic, but not acrobatic as much. So like you saw, it was always Hulk Hogan and then the undertaker and then it was um, Macho Man, and then it was I I I have to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. I have to interrupt. Undertaker wildly underutilized as an acrobatic wrestler. I watched that dude do so many tope suicidas in his career. That dude would just launch himself over the top rope at the drop of a hat. He did the rope walk. He was a lot more airborne than people want to give him credit for because he was a big guy. Now, so. now he might not have been used in that way. I'll give you that. I've seen him do the rope walk. I'm pretty sure at least a few times. Um, but if you look like the rock was kind of at the, but when you compare him to like the Ray Mysterios and stuff who didn't get as much play with Vince, um, you kind of see the difference. So Vince always, I think he's always going to go back to that, to that big guy, big giant mentality because Andre the giant and then 
the big show and you know like just all the plethora of big guys that did something diesel i mean they just like diesel was almost like a um the wish version of hulk hogan in a sense and he did the big boot just like hogan he was just taller but he but he was kind of like a knockoff in my opinion of hogan could be wrong but i did i did get that kind of feel from him um i'll I'll very vehemently disagree with you on that aspect. I think Kevin Nash, Diesel, Big Sexy, as they called him, was his own man. You know, he's iconic for being part of NWO with Scott Hall, Razor Ramon. So I, I definitely see, like, yeah, they had some similar movesets because both of them were taller guys. The big boot's pretty common for anybody over the six foot six mark in professional wrestling. I am going to argue to death that Rey Mysterio is extremely hard to book. He's a fast high flyer, but even for the high flyers, he's on the shorter end. You look at that guy run into the ropes and he has to bounce off the second rope instead of the third rope. Yeah. Right. He's super short. It makes him hard to book. So you always have to book him in an underdog story, right? Because he's the little guy. Everyone else in is a giant by comparison. So it turns into this basically repetitive process of where he's the giant slayer. So he's very, he's definitely very hard to book. The best thing that has ever happened to Rey Mysterio as far as creative goes was when he would spend some time away and then, and then come back. Cause again, you distance makes the heart grow fonder as they say, give him a little time away, have him come back. He's always fun to watch. So that's my, my opinion on it. Well, and I'm going to take that opportunity to kind of segue into our next topic um, on the subject of storytelling and cookie cutter and a way to kind of break away from that and do something interesting and original. I wanted to talk about some of our new releases and top of the lists that we find in what I'm going to call kitchen table gaming, covering tabletop RPGs, miniatures, and of course, board games. Now, first and foremost, obviously, we talked about the uh, D&D OGL. One thing we didn't talk about is some of the outcomes from that. Even though they backpedaled, even though they tried to do everything what what the fans wanted, what you've seen from that is just a massive shift in what games people are playing. Um, my personal table, now I don't think this had anything to do with the OGL, if I'm being honest. We had one of our players that's been pushing for us to change to Pathfinder 2nd Edition for over a year because he thought it was a better system. But you're seeing companies like uh, Paizo that are going through... Let me see. Let me find the quote here. Um, so this is quoting from an article on Polygon by Charlie Hall. And it says, In the weeks that Hasbro spent publicly flailing, customers spent an extraordinary amount of money investing in its competition. Paizo, publisher of the popular Pathfinder and Starfinder games, reported on January 26th that it had sold through an eight-month supply of Pathfinder core rulebooks. Chaosium, which are the publishers of Call of Cthulhu, likewise said they sold through months of stock and has multiple new shipments of books on its way from manufacturing partners. Now, I am going to talk a little bit about 1D&D and the changes coming down the pipe from that, but I did have some big news that came out of Kickstarter, of all places, and so when all, a lot of us are looking for tabletop role-playing games, we're going to be looking inside of our fandoms, right? If you like medieval fantasy or whether you like, you know, Eastern mythologies with your samurai and your ninjas and your stuff, 
uh, or whatever you want. There's a game out there for you. There's a bunch of really good games out there. As of right now, as of February 23rd, you can now get the Avatar Legends RPG. Came out on Kickstarter. And it's an Avatar The Last Airbender RPG that is getting rave reviews. It's getting just fantastic reviews and it looks like a really good system. Now, when you start looking at it with Pathfinder and Starfinder and some of the others, I think that Avatar Legends is going to fill a really interesting and kind of a niche role when it comes to tabletop RPGs. That's that's a really interesting one. I've never heard of a show jumping to a tabletop as quick as that one. Usually, it seems like they do a lot of card games first, like how Dragon Ball has gone to cards, how... Uh, My Hero Academia, best anime out there, has gone to cards, like things like that. So you usually they go, I find, to cards, not the tabletop so quick. That's pretty impressive. Like when you look, someone mentioned Star Wars, just so you know, it was out a long time before RPG, before the tabletop came out. But um, so that's that's actually pretty interesting because I haven't seen like any of the anime do tabletop. Transformers kind of did tabletop, but I don't think they have anything official out. So that, that's actually pretty cool that, that they jump straight to tabletop. I I only have one question, and that is when are we going to be rolling up characters for this, Ryan? Is this something <laughs> we're doing soon? What's happening here? Uh, it's definitely one I want to have in my collection. I highly recommend it. I'm a huge fan of the show, obviously. The books are... My, my daughters really enjoy the books. I think it's a really cool one, and so I wanted to bring it up, give them kind of a shout-out. This is a major move on their part, because like Eric said, it's unusual. And so they had to go through Kickstarter, and I think it's going to be great. I, I demand this and the My Little Pony <laughs> RPG game. I want to do both. Dude. For the love of God, let's make it happen. He wants to do My Little Pony because he's got no hair. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to live vicariously through my characters. <laughs> You're Rainbow Bright. No, not Rainbow Bright. Sorry, wrong. Wrong. Wrong one. Rainbow Dash. Wrong one. Rainbow Dash. You know, yeah. So, joking set aside, uh, I'm going to take a minute to kind of ask you guys this. Not including Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, or other Dungeons and Dragons SRD games, do you have any favorite role playing games? I've done Transformers, like I mentioned. There was a rule set we found um, that was interesting. Just so everyone knows, real quick. So, when Transformers transform and they magically have weapons and stuff like that, supposedly each transformer actually has an individual space um incorporated somehow into their being um kind of like a bag of holding so that's kind of how they grab their extra stuff that isn't with them um it was interesting to see how it worked out um it was kind of cool but that was i only did it once and then other than that uh shadow run Shadowrun's huge. Shadowrun. Very detailed. Um, it's hard to find someone that'll run a Shadowrun game. A- and then Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah. Eric Eric had like six that, that he wanted to mention. <laughs> I've narrowed my list down to a single entry, and that is Scion. Always give me more Scion. Scion. I absolutely love that game it is so unbelievably broken in favor of the players with first edition and i loved it you could do so much wild stuff hide in plain sight transport myself into a refrigerator 
create a bar fire by lighting a single match outside six blocks away. It's absolutely just the best game I think I've played in favor of the players. You could do so much. The story setting was amazing. The character building was amazing. The premise was amazing. As long as there's no math. As long as there's no math. Because I definitely mentioned three, not six. So I'm just saying like your math's a little off. So as long as there's no math. Yeah, right. Well, Sorry, in, uh, I should have said I should have said an extravagant amount, so you wouldn't have known what I was talking about. Since I have to use my five dollar words. <laughs> so yeah, I mean those those are excellent examples. I I agree with with all of those. Actually, I think Shadowrun Shadowrun is not a game to take lightly, right? A your DM or your your GM, I think is what they call it in that one. Your game master. For those of you that are interested in DMing uh, a game of Shadowrun, bear in mind you have to run three simultaneous games in a shadow run setting because you have to have the the physical space that's where you know your your bruisers and your fighters are like fighting in the street and shooting at people you have to run a digital space where your programmers and your hackers and and that kind of stuff do their thing and you have to run a mystical space where the the magic users planeswalker use the spirit realm or or whatever wonderfully complex very deep very rich game that has been popular for decades. There is an epic amount of novels and media that you can consume for Shadowrun, not including, like, not not limited even to video games. There's some fantastic Shadowrun video games out there. Um, Scion, I agree with Travis. Scion, especially first edition that was released by White Wolf Gaming, an amazing storytelling game. The narrative aspect of that one was glorious. And you started off small and you rapidly advanced through the ranks. One of the ones I wanted to bring up that I thought would be a good contender, and Travis, you played at our table when we used this one, that's the Star Wars RPGs. Edge of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, you know, and these these are amazing because they're not cookie-cutter games to cycle back around. These games use a unique dice system to narratively create an environment that the players and the DMs both get to contribute to, and I think it's one that I would heavily recommend. I I always enjoyed our Star Wars games. I really wish we could finish an overall story arc besides getting in yeah. like six to ten missions before we call it quits and get gamer ADD. I don't know what it is about sci-fi games and our rolling group, but we just just can't hang tough to get to the end of a story arc, it seems like. Well, and on the subject, um, now what we've been discussing has been a very casual RPG player, right? These are your your nerds that gather around with their friends on a kitchen table and they roll up a game. Maybe they have something very, very serious to them, campaigns that have lasted for years. But I did want to touch on one other detail before I pass the torch in the, in the notables here, and that's going to be the Dungeons & Dragons Adventures League. Now, that's a whole different way to play. I've never participated in the Adventure League myself, um, but apparently there's a lot of really good changes coming down the pipe for the D&D Adventures League. Um, whole new bundles that are getting sold and and licenses that are getting passed over. And for our listeners that are part of the Dungeons & Dragons Adventurers League, you're looking at a lot of changes to the player's guide, to the season structure, um, and to player choice allocation. Um, for those of you that don't know what the Adventure League is, the Adventure League is a way to play an RPG like Dungeons & Dragons where your player's activity and choices 
are recorded and monitored by lore developers so that you have a chance to make an impact on the actual canon arc of the game. Um, and we've seen a lot of really cool stuff come out of that. And so it looks like the changes that uh, Greg Marks um, recently discussed are leading to a whole new season structure, a lot more adventure releases, and a lot more player activity and input on the Adventuring League, which I think is exciting. Yeah, I mean, Adventuring League is kind of a cool idea the way they do it. Um, if you're in a vibrant city that, that really is going, um, it would probably work better because it, it is it is something that's sort of like playing in Magic the Gathering tournaments and stuff like that. Like you have to have actually like s- serious things. And I think you have to register and like you have to be an actual DM through a website and like there's quite a bit to it. So it's not something that's easy. Um, but any of you do, that do it like props, it, that's crazy. But the next thing I want to get into yeah. just to kind of carry the story over um, into a big world setting, kind of like a, like a tabletop game is Starfield. Um, so with that, that is Bethesda's first new IP in, in 25 years. Um, so that, that in and of itself is a huge thing. Um, everyone knows them for a small, small collection of games that just keep re-releasing over and over again on the same, on new systems, um, instead of making new games, which is, you know, whatever. Um, I've never been a huge fan of, of their stuff continuously carrying on, um, I like it with the original releases. Um, I always find it interesting when companies, it's almost to me, it seems like money grabs, but Starfield, it sort of seems like their first big risk in a long time. Um, It seems like Bethesda usually finds that horse and sorts of, they kind of beat it to death. Um, So with Starfield, it's very exciting to see them do something um, in space and totally different because if they can do what they've done in fantasy era stuff and take that to space, like I, I'm already sold. Like I will more than likely be purchasing Starfield right when it comes out. And I'm very hesitant with new games because usually they are uh, flawed and, and different issues and stuff like that. But Bethesda generally um, in my experience has been good with releases Um Original releases, yeah. not so much like yeah. as they continue to reboot for system, for system, for system. Like I think, didn't Skyrim come out on Nintendo and now it's on PS5 or something? Like oh, Skyrim's on anything. You can play it on your smart fridge. Yeah, anymore. I think I think there's urinals now, that have it somewhere in some foreign countries. So like, it's everywhere now. Well, yeah, I will say I, that Bethesda releases some of the best material some of my favorite games are all bethesda games they are kind of the king of the release glitches in my bugger bugger feature bugger feature um but for a lot of their games that was part of the charm um you know and i i've honestly wondered if the bethesda release schedule and the difficulties with elder scroll 6 and with starfield and similar games has been because of and i don't remember exactly how this go how this went down but didn't Microsoft actually acquire Bethesda? Don't don't they have ownership? That's why everything kind of showed up on Game Pass, right? I'm I'm pretty sure. Let me let's let's ask Google real fast, like while we're here. So yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm looking that up myself. Um, oh man, Microsoft has 23 first party game studios now. Um, Sony oh. has only 13, and Bethesda is one of them. But it will be run has a separate business. Um, 
with its existing leadership. That's kind of a big deal in my opinion, because if you're going to use the existing leadership, it means you have faith in them. Um, they have done good things. I don't know that the king of buggies or whatever you guys were talking about with them. Um, I've played the games. I haven't noticed anything too crazy, but I also, I didn't think cyberpunk was that buggy when it came out, when I played it, um, there were glitches There was kind of weird to hit them. Um, but I, I mean, you saw the videos, you saw the releases, you saw the reviews. It was definitely buggy. Um, I think it's just your luck when it comes to video games. And unfortunately, since I've spent most of my luck on video games in life, um, I'm kind of blessed usually with releases. So I haven't had as many problems with them. Um, oh, yeah. Well, in a lot of these games, obviously, they're, the bugs here recently have been overhyped. We had a whole discussion on it in a previous episode about how the fan base is really unforgiving of that kind of thing anymore. And it wasn't that way whenever Skyrim originally released. Um, there was a lot of bugs, nothing that was like terribly game breaking or anything, you know, fallout games have always had a few bugs that had to be addressed and patched, um, fallout 76, one of the most difficult string uh, strings of bugs, but overall I will say I'm a huge Bethesda fan and the fact they're doing Starfield, I think is amazing. I'm super excited about it. I don't know that I'm going to pre-order it anymore because I've been burned too many times, but definitely one I'm going to look into. Yeah, super, super excited for Starfield. I love the IPs coming out of Bethesda. I've always been a big fan of all the Elder Scrolls game. We've talked about it on a previous episode. For whatever reason, the Fallout series just doesn't tickle my fancy. It's got all the things in video games that I absolutely love. But for whatever reason, when I pick up a Fallout game, I'm like, this is okay. This is fine. It's a video game. I don't really get super into it barring the single exception that is Fallout New Vegas, which is wildly popular among the Fallout series. Uh, I think my hype for Fallout as an IP got pretty pretty burned with how bad I experienced glitches in Fallout 76. Definitely one where I keep a very close eye on any Bethesda things coming out to see how it is upon release. So it's probably one of those ones I'm probably going to wait a month or two after Starfield drops before I pick it up. Let them get some of those patches in there that I know inevitably are going to come, especially given the scope of that game. It's going to be huge. I'm going to give them time to fix some of those things before I go ahead and pick it up. I definitely think because of No Man, like we've talked about before, there's going to be hesitation, but I I really think that's going to work to their advantage and and they've already delayed once. Um, So I think a game of that proportion, like they've already decided, which is super annoying in no man's sky to like fly into a planet and land Um, there. If I'm not mistaken, Starfield's already said, you're not going to do that. It's not going to be as cumbersome with it. So it's going to be more of an easy transition to flying and land. Um, So that's like one thing. And yeah, just it, the customization, all their games is always so in-depth. It's going to be cool to see what they do. I don't think they should be shooting for as many planets and things like that that they're shooting for. Um, uh, they could be doing expansions along the way, like maybe every three months, um, release a lot, release more planets. Or something. I don't know. I'm not a, a developer. I'm not that kind of guy. I can write a story. They want that. I'm here for them. But uh, I definitely, I'm not the guy that's going to program the, the O's and ones um, to figure that all out. So we'll see what see what they do with it. 
Bethesda, if you're listening, Eric wants a job. That's what I determined from that statement. <laughs> yep, that's what that was. I think I've actually mentioned it every single one of our podcasts to somebody that I want a job, <laughs> be it Crunchyroll, be it Square Enix, be it uh, Bethesda. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm in it to win it with anybody um, that, that needs a, a lackey. I'm very good um, at, at the lackey role. Um, I'm, uh, I can fill in any sort of block needed. Pod, podcasters for hire. Right. I mean, you know, selling my soul to the, to the highest bidder or the lowest bidder, whatever the bid is. Um, I tend to just go if with there's it. There's only one bid. It's the highest. Right. Bid. Exactly. See? Um, <laughs> and, and the last big thing I, um, we, we definitely need to touch on. Everybody knows this Activision thing. It is fucking huge in the gaming industry and the reason it is so huge is because it's so controversial and i would say it's probably so controversial because of one game in particular which is call of duty um right now the call of duty pro league is on ps5 activision has been purchased by microsoft microsoft has said they are going to share the call of duty um and they actually just signed a deal with nintendo for 10 years to to put call of duty on the switch um so m- sorry to interrupt here yeah so the the activision controversy you're talking about for maybe some of our listeners that don't know what it is what's going on with that so microsoft has pers- purchased activision um but in europe i gotta i'll pull it up while we're talking and i'll bring it up in a moment um in in one of the i'm pretty sure it's european countries it's being blocked right now um it's it's not it's not being like um uh, stop being allowed to go through um there's a lot of controversy because people feel like for whatever reason especially sony with all of its titles that are sony only um is complaining that they'll be xbox is going to get kind of like the equivalent of an edge um in the gaming industry because of the fact that microsoft would have cod what's up travis it's just a really weird argument to be coming out of Sony with as many exclusive titles as they have on their console by comparison to Xbox. I really feel like that's kind of a... I don't want to say it's a null argument because, yeah, picking up Activision Blizzard is going to be huge for Microsoft, but at the same time, they've got so many exclusive titles by comparison to Xbox that it really feels like they're not, if anything, it's going to make them more competitive with titles. Not to mention the fact that Activision has come out and said that Call of Duty will still be available on every console. Microsoft has straight up said that if they get Activision Blizzard, they'll bring it to Nintendo. And they're willing to sign, I think they set up to a 10-year deal with Sony. No, it's, yeah, it's 10 years. Yeah, to release a Call of Duty game to Sony every year. So I I really don't see this as being a just a massive, massive edge in regards to Xbox over PlayStation. Yeah, the 10-year deal right now is going to be with Nintendo, and I think they're doing that trying to appease the court system in the sense of showing that they're not going to bogart the games. Like, they're not... It's not what... It's not in Microsoft's best interest to keep these games to themselves when they can make money off of Sony and Nintendo. It makes no sense. Like when people say that or to yes. think that is is dumb. Like if I'm Coca-Cola and I know I can make money off of Pepsi, 
why am I not going to make money? They're my competitor. Why am I not going to take money? So. Oh, absolutely. Well, and the big kicker is this would not be the first time that Microsoft has had to toe the line and buck up against charges of edges or even monopolies on a market. Monopoly had that whole scandal all the way through the 90s that they were monopolizing the, the digital market and or the computer market, excuse me. And so they kind of know what they're doing on this front. They know what the rules are going to be. And while it might give them an edge, I don't think it's going to be nearly as significant as a lot of the controversial talk says it's going to be. They also, I feel like this was also something that got brought up when they were looking to purchase Bethesda. If I recall correctly, when Microsoft was making that bid to go ahead and pick them up, it's just... uh, it's just one of those things where like i don't i don't see that sony really has a huge leg to stand on because i mean they made the same argument when microsoft picked up bethesda oh they're cornering the market oh they're monopolizing i think it would be a boon to microsoft if they picked up activision blizzard at the same time if they're willing to sign these ironclad 10-year deals with multiple platforms it's one of those things where Microsoft is going to make its money regardless. You know, I'm not saying we should just bow down to it because they're going to make the money. That's not the statement I'm trying to make, but they're willing to share these IPs with other console platforms. Why not? Why not let it go through? You know, and with, with all of this going on, the the acquisition of, of Activision and Blizzard, the, you know, Microsoft buying out uh, Bethesda, but keeping the leadership in place. Um, the Hasbro OGL stuff, it makes me really want to start educating myself on business law because there's a lot of this apparently I do not understand and I just cannot comprehend. Yeah, I I unfortunately know that I'm not going to read enough to learn it. Um, So I've given up and just sort of, I just follow the news. But it is, it's very interesting because it's definitely hard to understand how how it works because as us looking out or us looking in from the outside without the education to like Sony has a lot of titles that are Sony only. And if they aren't Sony only, they have a lot of titles where they have content that's only on Sony. So like there's always stuff that seems to be only Sony. Like I don't like Xbox. Let's be totally honest right now. I don't, I I buy them when halo comes out and then I, I give it away. I throw it out. I sell it. Something happens. I'm a Halo diehard, so I will always get the new system for Halo. Eventually, I'll buy the new Xbox to play the new Halo. I haven't done it yet. I've only played it on my computer, but I will, and then I'll get rid of it. So I'm not a I'm not an Xbox lover, but I don't see an issue with this whole deal, this whole sale at all. Um, I, I I don't see any like I don't see any grounds that that, that they can stand on. I mean, they could pull all the numbers. It, it's very public knowledge of all the things that Sony has going for it. Um, so I think it's eventually going to go through. I think Sony, for whatever reason, is is kind of grasping at straws um, at this point, just trying to hope and pray um, that it doesn't go through. I just I can't see it not eventually going through. Um Maybe Sony gets a little bit sweeter deal than Nintendo did from Microsoft for COD, but ah, that's it, man. I don't see anything else. Travis. I, don't, I just I hope just, that uh, 
Microsoft brings back Heroes of the Storm. I, I want it. I want it to be revitalized. I yeah. I in accordance with Ryan on that one. I loved Heroes of the Storm. Such a cool thing from Activision Blizzard. I was just gonna say the only thing that I hope does not come from this whole thing is Microsoft liquidating Activision Blizzard in order to dodge the very serious allegations that they've had with their workplace environment. Obviously, when you misbehave, you should be held accountable. I'm going to stand by that statement uh, until I die. Actions have consequences. If you behave like a despicable person, you should be held accountable as a despicable person. So, I think that's I think that's the last topic we have in regards to the Activision Blizzard and Microsoft merger. Moving on, speaking of massive amounts of money making deals, Magic the Gathering. We talked about it in the episode yep. called Magic the Gathering: The Arms Race. Phyrexia All Will Be One has just released February 10th, which is just a handful of days ago from the point of recording. They are now already previewing and talking about their next release, which is entitled, what was it? March of the Machine, which will be released on April 21st. For those of you that follow Magic pretty closely, that's the next release set that's going to be coming out. Again, talking about that Magic the Gathering arms race and how they've just upped the amount of releases They've oh, already man. announced the. They've already announced the follow up to March of the Machine. It has a part two that's going to be coming out in addition to the Lord of the Rings set, which we'll be releasing in June of this year. It's just so wild how flooded the market is getting with Magic: The Gathering right now. It's because of the, yeah, that's the company that bought them is, is is the thing. A lot of they're making a lot of money off of not just Magic, but they're it's also off of D and stuff like that um if you look that that's such an untapped thing and and right now unfortunately they are beating both of those to death um magic a lot more than D D. at least they're taking their time with this new edition that's going to come out um they're they're testing it and things like that but like with magic they're just they're 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 you can only beat this horse so much dude like I know I've said it earlier, but like, I only got so much money, man. Like, I like magic, but I can't be I can't be buying a new set every every ten days. It's just too much, man. I'm not getting a second job for magic. Well, and more so than that, they're shotgunning so much content out and saturating the market so heavily that there's not time for these sets to enter the professional scene. It, I mean, there's only when you're talking about like pro tours and invitationals and opens all of these take time. And right now the market is so saturated that the professional circuit is getting lapped. It's getting outstretched. And so a lot of these people that are professional magic players that go to these tournaments and are dependent on performing well, kind of the same way you see professional golf players go. The, the cards that are entering are outstripping everything. Whenever I was a judge, your type two legal, your uh, your standard play, your type two legal decks that you would see in in tournament scenes were the last three released sets and the previous core set. And as it stands right now, we're in February, and they're already previewing and pre-ordering for set two of the Phyrexia arc 
eight days after the first set releases that's that's ridiculous it's really wild i mean so you get like i said phyrexia all will be one february 10th release date march of the machine april 21st march of the machine the aftermath may 12th that's less than a month between set releases shadows over innistrad is somewhere mid 2023 you've got the lord of the ring lord of the rings release which is going to be june 2023 wilds of eldraine which is quarter three of 2023 it's just it's so many card sets coming out so fast one of the reasons why i've you've missed the most important thing dude transformers there are transformers magic cards (laughs) I need them. You're not wrong. I, I need them. Oh, go ahead and continue. Sorry for the interruption. It, well, it was just, you know, going back to the episode where we talked about it with the arms race. It, this is just a phenomenal amount of releases by comparison. You used to talk about one a quarter when Magic the Gathering was still probably one of the most popular and highly played trading card games. One a quarter plus a yearly release with whatever their core set was that had basically the highlights throughout the year. All the way up to we're talking, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six releases uh, that have been announced just on a quick Google search. It's really wild to see how fast they're shotgunning cards. And it's one of those things where if you're a nerd on a budget like I am, you really have to pick and choose which sets are going to mean the most to you. And that's where you're going to have to dive in. Cause there's just no way anybody's got the money to keep up with how much that's being shotgunned into the market. I think tournament play is going to take a huge hit from this. Um, and once they start seeing that happen, I think it'll start to slow down um, because right now to really be competitive, it's, to me, it seems like it would be difficult because of how many is coming out. Um, obviously, you don't need the newest set every time to throw in your deck. Um, I think usually tournaments, if it's like a standard tournament, it's like the three most current ones. Right, Ryan? You were a judge. Yeah, the three most, three most current blocks, each of which contain three separate sets and the core set. Right. So, I mean, it's hard to keep up with when they're releasing like they are. So, I think... I think they're going to have to definitely slow it down a little bit. Um, But I will say, so I do follow another podcast. I know I'm giving a shout out um, again, but Drunk With Buds podcast. Um, I do follow their Twitter. It's pretty funny. Um, And they've showed some of the cards on there for the new releases, like when they've done pack openings and stuff. And like they do look rather nice. Um, they're definitely not skimping on anything they do with these with these sets. They are still maintaining um, a, like a, originality. Like the the pictures are nice. Um, the the play oh, absolutely yeah the play is consistent. Like it, they're they're not being cheap with it. They're not putting out more content than they can handle. Mechanically speaking, I've never enjoyed goblins as a deck format for magic the gathering but i collect them solely based on the flavor text and artwork associated with goblin cards they always have just the best flavor text at the bottom of those cards in my opinion so yeah it but as far as tournament play goes i couldn't imagine being a tournament player right now i tried it very briefly and found out that i don't do well in tournament play 
mostly because I get addicted to hate drafting during drafting tournaments, and I see Ryan cringing already. Uh, but Daddy's out to make money. Well, and it's kind of ha- it has an interesting problem when you start looking at the money pit hobbies, right? Magic: The Gathering and trading card games, Warhammer, Warhammer and miniatures wargaming, you know, and this kind of stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna compare it to a mobile game. I, I play a couple of mobile games. Everybody's got something they do for fun on their phone. Um, I'm a big fan of gotcha games. I like hero collectors and that kind of stuff. And so I play one right now called Marvel Strike Force, which is superhero stuff. We're all we're all nerds here. The problem with Marvel Strike Force is that it would be impossible, in my opinion, for a new player to join the game. There's so much content and everything's so geared to the new release stuff that if you tried to join the game right now, you would never be able to actually play. You would never be able to actually complete events. Magic Gathering is almost having the inverse of the problem. Used to, they would allow the sets to establish a meta, the tournament scene to evolve, and now they're releasing sets so fast that, you know, when the Pro Tour comes around or the Invitationals come around, they're going to have to set a block limit and say, this is what we're playing with, and that block limit's going to be overshot by the time the tournament actually takes place, and there's going to be 10,000 new cards out that none of the people that locked their roster in, so to speak, at the tournament are going to be allowed to use. And it's, yeah, it's, I think I agree with Eric. I think eventually they will get to a point where they got to slow down. They're going to start realizing like, whoa, I don't, I don't think I can do this with the exception of perhaps limited play. You know, you're talking sealed or you're talking drafting that could probably stay up with the new stuff, but that's about it. I think the best aspect they could go into it specifically speaking for tournament play is go back to your, Maybe not necessarily your quarterly releases, but maybe three tournament-related releases per quarter. That way, every quarter has its own tournament set, so to speak. And then have your self-contained Magic the Gathering releases. Speaking, for example, the Warhammer 40k. Not a tournament-legal set, but was fun. I have enjoyed playing all of them. The artwork on them is absolutely phenomenal. I don't know who they're paying to draw these things up, but kudos for finding some of the best 40k artists I think I've seen in a really, really long time. So, Oh yeah, absolutely. Magic the Gathering's artists are just premium. I gotta give a shout out to anybody that does art for Magic the Gathering. Amazing, amazing job. Dude, on a, on a for real note, like Right now, supposedly Disney's going to slow down Star Wars because too much content and stuff like that, or Marvel, things like that. Like they're looking at slow. Dude, Magic is pumping out, out cards, and they still look amazing. Now I can't say they all play well, obviously, because I'm not playing all these new cards. But I've seen the pictures; they're not hard to get a hold of to see. They all look amazing. Oh, yeah. The text on them looks good. It looks solid. It's not drivel. It's not. It's not repetitive nonsense. Like so, as much as I don't like the fact that they're putting out so much, they're definitely not skimping, man. Like you got to you got to give them credit. So I almost feel like they're not making as much as you think, just because it seems like they're paying. They got to be paying for this. So it, it's it's crazy to me, dude. Well, I think that covers a lot of the major points in the notables of the Nerdverse. 
I did want to cover a couple of small topics, and then I'm going to pass the torch on to my uh, my co-host here to uh, to cover our ground as we begin to wrap up. I did want to bring up for our board game listeners. Um, I'm our tabletop guy, so I cover a lot of the RPGs and board games and miniatures wargaming. Um, and this is coming from the data from Board Game Geek. It's uh, a site that governs and, and tracks a lot of this stuff. They've been up for about 20 years, and there is a number one board game slot. For the first time since 2017, that number one slot has changed. Now, in a 20-year tenure of monitoring and collecting data on board games, there have only been eight games that made it, or I guess nine games, that made it kind of to the top of the list. And that's Pads of Glory, Tigris and Euphrates, Puerto Rico, Agricola, Twilight Struggle, Pandemic, and Gloomhaven. Now, Gloomhaven has been number one on the lists since 2017, December of 2017. Couldn't be touched. It just stayed there. However, it did just get passed by Brass Birmingham. And the interesting part about that is it's not a new game. Brass Birmingham released in 2018. And it's a fantastic game. Uh, highly recommend it to anybody. But it seems like this game has entered something of a, a baton race, a, a relay race, with Gloomhaven for that number one slot. Um, so for any of our board game listeners out there, there's two major recommendations from the community. Gloomhaven and Brass Birmingham. How was Settlers of Catan not on that list for board games? I remember that thing, even today, is still... You know, new expansions and stuff are coming out, but I'm really shocked that Settlers of Catan did not make the list. Oh, I agree. And bear in mind, these lists don't contain a lot of the, like, really classic games. You're not going to see Monopoly on this list, for example. You're not going to see Sorry or The Game of Life. Um, and so it's possible that Settlers has become classic enough to where it doesn't feature. But I'm just as surprised as you. I think Settlers is one of the greatest board games ever designed, and I'm surprised not to see it on the list. I'm not a board game player, but I will play Settlers of Catan. Uh, Ryan can attest to the fact that I will skip board game night any given opportunity unless a select few board games are being played. I think I'm one of like maybe 30 people on the planet that really liked the uh, Firefly board game. I know Ryan plays it, but I think I'm the only other person on the planet that's like, hell yeah, let's play that again. Oh yeah, absolutely my favorite board game of all time. Firefly for sure. Great show. I don't know about the board game. Never mess with it. Uh, not not much of a Play board it, game guy. Um, I played Settlers like on my phone, like you know, you can play the computer type deal. Probably not the same, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, not, never never got into the board games as much. Well, I will say this: board games come in the same flavors as any other nerddom, right? It depends on if you're looking for superhero stuff, for sci-fi stuff, or fantasy stuff. And you got some that are big swingers and others that are lesser known. You want to do fantasy stuff? Play some Talisman. Classic game. Major onto the fantasy kick. So many expansions that it's nearly impossible to own them all. Highly recommend it. You want to do cool pirate stuff? Merchants and Marauders. Fantastic game. Love playing it. Very piratey. When it comes to sci-fi, you can't beat Firefly. Amazing, amazing game. 
if you want to not take anything seriously at all, play Munchkin. That is probably <laughs> my... It's a Firefly and Munchkin in a very tight race for what is number one for me when I sit down to play a board game. You know what? I'm going to take the opportunity. Anybody that's listening, if you have favorite board games, whether you play it just on your kitchen table with a couple people or in major, like, head down to your local game shop and have major game plays, let us know what you play. Let us know what your favorite board games are, and we'll talk about it on the show. We'll feature them. Let us know what we're missing or what we are not playing. I would love that. All right, so the absolute last thing we're going to mention, it's got to be DC, man. So DC. Um, we're not going to get horribly in-depth with everything because there's a lot going on. DC's pretty shady. Um, the big things I'm going to mention is supposedly Gunn is going to have his big guns picked out in the next six months for the DC universe. Um, this is kind of exciting because I am curious to see what DC does. James Gunn coming from Marvel um, has seen what they do, how they act. Um, I get it. He, he did Guardians, but he was still involved in the process. I'm sure he sat in on on, on readings and write-ups for other movies and shows that they've done. Um, he, he didn't just do Guardians, you know. So it's going to be interesting. Will he change it up? Like we've said before, Marvel took a lot of actors and actresses um, kind of not on the downswing, but like not as popular as other other people. Some of them were truly on the outs. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look like um, Chris Evans was looking at getting out of acting, I've seen in interviews he mentioned until he took the role. Um, Robert Downey Jr. What's that, Travis? Paul Bet Paul Bettany. His All agent bad. had told him to give up acting entirely before he got cast as Jarvis. Like he was straight up told by his agent, you'll never really see anything in Hollywood. What's kind of well, funny with Marvel is the only actresses I can think or the only actors they picked that were mainstream were all the ladies. Um, if you look like Scarlett Johansson, um, Paltrow, and then Haley, who played Hawkeye's sidekick i guess in the tv show they were all yeah they were all actually mainstream but if you look at the more of the guys um they were not as much um they were all kind of something else that that they did that was what i considered a little unusual is they started opening up the gates for television bringing up television actors and letting them take place in these major productions um which i think is great which i think is cool I hope I hope DC does the same. It's going to be weird to see I'll, what Gunn does. What's that, Travis? All all I've got to say is justice for Henry Cavill. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. my that is my stance with DC at this point. That's your hill you're going to die I on. I mean, you you are right. So if anybody's wondering what he's talking about, so supposedly, um, James Gunn was working on the script for a new Superman movie prior to, um what was it? Adam being made the, the big rock movie. See, I didn't, I didn't even like it. I don't even remember the title anyways. So prior to that movie being made, uh, gun was already working on the new Superman movie. So he already knew he wasn't going to go with Henry Cavill, but then DC 
got Henry Cavill to come back and kind of appear at the end of the movie, Black Adam. Now, there's a lot of weirdness with it. Like, supposedly they knew Henry Cavill wouldn't be back. They didn't tell Henry Cavill that. Everyone got super excited. My only problem is with the media today, there is a chance that they, we, the fans, got more excited about it. Um, and kind of took it as like he's going to come back um, more so than he actually was. But it, even so, having Henry Cavill in the movie didn't help Black Adam that much, which just goes to show is how bad would it have done without the mention of Henry Cavill playing Superman for two minutes? Like, if they pulled that from the movie, how bad would it have done? So it's curious, but I do want to see Gunn. Like I said, six months, we're supposed to start getting our, our cast of DC characters um, within that time frame. I, I, I'm curious. What's up, Travis? I You know, definitely best of luck to him. I'm not going to wish the man ill in any way, shape, or form. I would love DC to take off and start doing some super successful movies. I feel like they're constantly passing up on stuff. The first one being not having the uh, was it Ryan Johnson? Was that the name of the director for the Batman movies with Christian Bale? No, no, you're thinking no. Christopher Nolan. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. Sorry, yeah, I don't know why Ryan Johnson. Popped Star up. Wars. Um, but go ahead. I yeah, my brain's melting. So yeah, so Christopher Nolan and. Uh, Christian Bale Batman I think was a missed opportunity to start doing some crossovers those were all fantastic well done DC movies and they always just want to isolate these ones their most recent one being them announcing that yeah Robert Pattinson is going to be its own little separate universe that's not going to be connected to their expanded DC universe which, again, is a missed opportunity. I was very, very leery about Robert Pattinson playing a Batman role. I watched the movie pretty good. I feel like there's a lot of room there to expand upon it, to really make a cornerstone for the franchise. And I think DC's just sleeping on it yet again. The biggest thing... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm of a similar opinion. I, I think that they sleep on a lot of these good ideas. I, I mean, my big one has always been, we had a really good Constantine movie. I think Keanu Reeves' Constantine is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. They're making a sequel. There's rumors. Yeah, there's rumors no, no, that they're, they're making a sequel. They're making a sequel. Oh, is it? Yeah, that's confirmed. Yeah, that, that's confirmed. That's yeah. a real thing. Yeah. Yes, and Keanu, Keanu Reeves is back for Constantine. Oh. He said he'd do it. So. Oh, beautiful. So, okay, here's here's my hopes. My hopes and dreams, right? They do the Constantine sequel, and it does well. Then they release Swamp Thing. Let Swamp Thing do well. Then do Zatanna, because I think Zatanna is in desperate need of a movie. And then give me some Dark Justice. DC, that's what I want. See, DC's missing an opportunity because they could do something outrageous right now. They are about to make The Flash, which is resetting, as we've all talked about, resetting the DC Universe. So this is what I would do. I would bring in Terry from Batman Beyond. I would bring in all futuristic superheroes and I would run it from there. 
we've already seen Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and all these characters. There is a really great arc they are not taking advantage of, of the future, where Terry meets the new Justice League, which isn't quite what it was, um, with Superman being more of um, not Superman than usual. So I think that's a great thing they could take advantage of and run with. Um, the fact that what they're going to do instead is they're going to have an older Batman again. He is going to be an older Batman because they want his son involved, which if anybody knows DC, his son is the fourth Robin. Damian Wayne. The fourth Robin, which means we are going to get another Batman that's even older than Ben Affleck's Batman. And then we're going to get a Superman that's younger than Batman again. So it's so you're thinking, I'm, I'm already not super keen on the idea because if you're already on Damian Wayne, technically by all iterations of the comics and shows, Batman has already been friends with Superman since the first Robin. So how is this going to work? Well, and it's almost like they're trying to set up a Flashpoint Paradox story, but in reverse, where they're going to try to Flashpoint into an injustice story i i honestly have no clue as to what like what they're doing other than resetting everything so it looks like they're gonna keep the flash the new aquaman movie i don't think plays in the new universe they're just releasing it so the blue beetle movie they have planned is in the new universe i know that yes your look of shock not many people know about it. There is a Blue Beetle movie yeah. planned. Nobody knows who Blue Beetle is. That's crazy. It, All right. Well, that's not I know. Young Justice. I know who. Yeah, I know who Blue Beetle is. He's my favorite of the Young Justice. But again, Henry Cavill for Superman, or I'm done with DC. Well, then you're done with DC, dude, because Henry Cavill's not. Yeah. Good. And again, they, they they haven't they have they haven't earned it. They haven't done no. a good connective movie arc yet. I'm not. I'm already done. I'm dude. 100% not. Yeah, I'm 100% not hopeful for DC. Again, I wish James Gunn the best of luck. I don't. Maybe it'll take off, but I'm like, meh. The moment I read yeah, gonna... that Batman and Damian Wayne is coming in, and Superman is going to, it's not his origin story again, but it's like a little after his origin. Like the moment that shit all came out, I was like, nah, I'm done. Like, you know what? I'm going to take a, a, a con, uh, the, the other side of it. I'm going to remain hopeful for the DC. And the reason behind it is because I think that the origin stories have been done to death. We don't need to see Bruce Wayne's parents get shot again. We don't need to see Uncle Ben get shot again in Spider-Man. We don't need a lot of these origin stories. And so if they're going to use the big guns, if they're pulling in Justice League, right? Wonder Woman, Superman, Aquaman, um, even Green Lantern. Which, whew, man, that movie. Um, I I hope and I hope it's going to be good. I think I think Gunn can do a decent job directing. I think they have really good storytellers. So I'm going to take a hopeful stance. Give me Michael Keaton and a Batman Beyond movie, and then shut everything down. I'm, That's fact. Fact. I'm telling you, they are missing out, dude. If you if you watch the storyline of the futuristic justice. I don't know if they were called justice league. I should have done better research on this, but the futuristic group that, that Terry gets involved with this Batman beyond like 
that's where they could have made their money. This nonsense of old Batman with his son finally meeting Superman. Like you, you, you're not, you're, you're messing up again. Like you're literally, you looked at what they did wrong last time with old Batman, young Superman, and you're doing it again, except this time you're, you're an even older Batman because you're bringing his son. Like, come on, man. It's just, it's too much. No, that's fact. That's true. And with that, we'll draw this Notables episode to a close. Eric, hit us with the links. All right, so of course you have our Twitter links, which are at HNerdverse for the for the big one, um, at CTN underscore podcast for us. Um, very easy to reach out to us. I'm pretty quick to reply to people. Um, if I don't reply quickly, obviously I still reply. Um, so I try to be involved with the community, um, sort of get out there. And then you also have crossingthenerdverse.com. It's our website. Um, you can you can get our three most recent episodes on there. You can also see um, we did a couple of YouTube stuff. We're, we're looking at doing some more, so just bear with us. Um, it's taking a little bit of time. Um, and then we're also on all your podcasting things, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, stitch like the anywhere you can find one we are there for our podcast um we keep it pretty up to date uh we also have our heroes of the nerdverse facebook group um get on there we are growing um our numbers are growing consistently and we are very active in that group um and then like i said i will have the merch up next month for sure when I do, you will be able to look anywhere Heroes of the Nerdverse, Crossing the Nerdverse is. I will have a link on there um, for the merch. Again, if you have any recommendations, like you want to see certain items, throw them out there. If it seems like people want it, I'll definitely um, incorporate it into the merch shop. Yeah, guys, with uh, Eric giving you all the links, I really want to encourage you, please give us some feedback. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are all over the place, and we are desperate to get your opinions so that you can get your voice on these topics out into the nerdverse. And with the merchandise release in March, you have a really good opportunity to tell us what you think. So hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. We really, really want to get you guys' feedback. And so if you like what you listen, you know, if you liked our show, Tell your friends about it. Have them join up with the groups. Give us a subscribe or a follow, and we would really appreciate it. You just listen to Notables in the Nerdverse, our kind of monthly news recap of what's been going on and everything that's happened, and three random guys' opinions on that. We are crossing the Nerdverse. Find us wherever you get your podcasts from. This has been yet another Notables in the Nerdverse, so thank you for joining us. I know this episode has ran a little longer than normal, but we appreciate you sticking around, and we'll catch you for the next episode. Thank you. See you guys.